Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I uh, welcome you to our first Engelsberg seminar, our first Engelsberg lecture, I should say, uh, of the series. Uh, my name is Christopher Coker. I am director of LSE Ideas. Uh, and to my left is our first Engelsberg chair, uh, Michael Burley. I should say something about the Engelsberg chair, and particular thanks to the Axel Johnson Foundation uh, for endowing this uh, important position. It's to bring historians of international stature together to discuss contemporary issues, mostly international relations, but uh, beyond that as well. So first of all, a, a great thanks from LSE Ideas to the Axel Johnson Foundation. The second great thanks is to Michael for coming here this evening. It's been my great pleasure and honor to know Michael for a very long time. We first met when, in fact, he was teaching here at the London School of Economics. I think 20 years ago or 30 years ago, probably. 30? 25. 25. Okay. Michael's the author of many books. Uh, he started off essentially as a historian of, of Nazi Germany, of contemporary fascism. He's gone on to look at many, many issues that, of course, are in the newspapers every day, uh, particularly terrorism. He's written books called Earthly Powers, uh, Blood and Rage, and various others. And his career has been punctuated by accolades and prizes. He gave up the academic life, uh, so he said in an interview with The Guardian many years ago, which I happened to Google the other day, to get academic freedom in order to be able to be plain speaking and to actually say what he had to say. And there's unfortunately an element of truth in this. Uh, you're not necessarily as free as you'd like to be in an academic setting. You may have read some of his uh, newspaper articles. Uh, he's uh, uh, one of the best, I think, contemporary observers of the scene when he's not writing books. You gave up doing television appearances some time ago, I think, because you simply said they didn't have the funds to actually <clears throat> do the right programs. When he said he didn't have the funds, <clears throat> he didn't mean you weren't getting paid enough. You were simply... I think you told a wonderful story about how cameramen had to go off and, and rent something because they simply didn't have enough money to actually continue. Do you remember? Shopping trolley. It was a shopping trolley. In it was a shopping trolley. Yeah, they needed to get a shopping trolley in order to actually get their equipment from one end to another. So that shows you the state of the British uh, television industry. He's giving us three lectures. Today will be We the People, Some Thoughts uh, from Our Past on Contemporary European Populism. So without uh, further ado, Michael, I will uh, turn over to you. I should just say that there will be a podcast of this uh, uh, lecture. Um, and secondly, uh, there are also some evaluation forms. We would like you to fill in the evaluation forms so uh, we can know what we can do. We can do better, not what Michael can do better later on. I will try to remind you of that uh, afterwards. And then there will be a Q&A session, and we'll probably end up around about 8 o'clock. So, Michael, over to you. Uh, good evening, and thank you for coming. Um, the last time I lectured in this auditorium was a quarter of a century ago. Everything seems reassuringly familiar. Same chairs, same paintwork. The ever-youthful Professor Coker, as I'm bound to say after that most generous introduction, one of the great scholar-philosophers of warfare. In the early 1990s, my talk was probably about the Nazis. Um, 
by then a niche preoccupation in a world mesmerized by the end of the Cold War in Europe. Imagine my surprise to find that nowadays this face is ubiquitous. In fact, there's even a history of the face. I haven't read it. We all know the TV history channels, which should be renamed Hitler channels, where the last global war is on a continuous loop. Many of you will have read new books dedicated to the expiry of democracy or the problems it's encountering in late middle age. These three are some of the best ones. Uh, take a photo of the slide afterwards if you want. There's also a newfound and urgent interest in the imminence of tyranny. The historian Timothy Schneider had success with a civics primer designed to help identify signs of creeping tyranny in the era of Donald Trump. The literary historian Stephen Greenblatt contributed Shakespeare on power, or tyrant as it's called here, which alludes to Trump on every page without actually ever mentioning him. Critics joke that Greenblatt has a bad case of the DTs, seeing Trump rather than creepy crawlies on the ceiling. This last rather uneven book had a lot of powerful admirers. Here is the holidaying Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, reading Greenblatt this summer, in preference to the avalanche of new social science books on populism. Good for her. Liberal warnings about the recrudescence of fascism and tyranny do not have a monopoly on lessons from the past. Among European populists, to range no further, um, mythologized or weaponized history abounds. It often consists of postmodernist mashups worthy of the disturbing content one can see every night on Russian TV. A recent video showed uh, Spain's far-right Vox Party leader Santiago Abascal on a horse reenacting the medieval Reconquista to the theme music of Lord of the Rings. His party has just doubled the number of seats in Parliament at a time of renewed crisis with the Catalan nationalists. Bang goes all our belief in Iberian exceptionalism. I suppose there's still Portugal. An alternative for Deutschland election poster from earlier this year used Jerome's 19th century uh, Orientalist painting of a slave market to ensure that, as it says, Europe doesn't become Eurabia. Then there is this sector dial, as Shakespeare called it, with the Brexit party using air raid sirens and searchlights to announce the imminence of Mr. Farage at their meetings, I'm often confused whether we're living in the darkest hour of 1940, or as some suggest, the early modern civil war, minus the swords and the muskets, or a rerun of the Protestant Reformation as we once more break with Brussels and the Treaty of Rome. This last bizarre conceit is especially popular among the conservative Roman Catholics who own and write the Brexity Daily Telegraph. Tonight I want to escape the dreary gravity of Hitler, not least because the EU's 28 nations have their own distinctive histories which we should respect. History is supposed to broaden the mind, not restrict our collective imaginations to the Nazis. But first I must optimistically rehearse why our time is unlike the interwar period. Our European present has not just emerged from a global war that killed 18 million people and which destroyed four uh, major 
empires by its episodic conclusion in 1918-1922. But of course, wars continued uh, between Greece and Turkey or within Ireland and Russia. We have experienced nothing comparable to the political effects of the hyperinflation and depression which bookended the Weimar Republic's tragic history. And in the case of inflation which destroyed the middle class, their money and liberal political parties. Our streets are not overrun by uniformed paramilitaries assaulting and murdering their rivals, often with the complicity of policemen and courts. Most European societies are strikingly demilitarized, as the Stanford historian James Sheehan showed in a rather good book, even though European defense spending is three times that of Russia, some of it for export. Nowhere in Europe are the military out of civilian control, as was the case of the political generals of Weimar or the imperialistic Japanese ones who in 19, from 1932 to 1945 hijacked the government. The retired three-star German Air Force general who's an AFD mayoral candidate at the moment just seems eccentric. Hardly anyone other than the evil or insane regards violence as essential to the birth of a new fascist type of being, let alone the idea that national salvation will, not might, result from murdering entire races. As David Runciman says, wars of national survival discredited far-right politics for a couple of generations. Since we're unlikely to have one, there is not going to be such a drastic resolution to populism. 60 million dead with a happy ending, by the way, is not a bargain any of us might want to pay. Now, this is not to recommend complacency towards that era of religioid totalitarianism to whose exploration I devoted two decades of my writing life. It's crucial to be alert to worrying affinities. One cannot read Sebastian Hafner's Defying Hitler without noting the implosion of the moderate political center, which is happening nowadays, particularly in the case of European social democracy. The re-emergence of movement politics within or outside political parties and often on the streets is also disturbing, most obviously in the case of PEGIDA, the German acronym for Patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the Occident, which from October 2014 onwards marched in several East German cities. There is a depressing relevancy in what the Viennese satirist Karl Kraus, the English novelist George Orwell, or the German philologist Victor Klemperer noted about the creeping brutalization of thought and language and the temptation of the tribal tom-tom beat, as George Orwell called it. Nor should we forget a personal favorite of mine, the exiled German Catholic historian Eric Fergelin, and his contempt for what he called a conservative elite rabble, which was disastrously porous towards the Hitlerites. He meant Papp and Schleicher and all the other posh vons that one could think of. There is much culpable porosity around nowadays, as well as transgressive speech, which helps lower the threshold to violence. In various countries, there's also a Jacobin-style mobocracy, a key word, only some of it confined to online platforms. Britain is not alone either in having politicized hooligans. The German equivalent to <clears throat> Stephen Yaxley Lennon, a.k.a. Tommy Robinson, founder of the English Defence League, is a convicted burglar and drug dealer called Lutz Bachmann, 
who founded Pegida. He now lives on the run in Tenerife. But before moving to a more recent past, which I think needs attention, I want to rehearse some thoughts about populism, since there are probably students of accountancy and finance or law here who might not be familiar, so familiar with this subject as historians or political scientists. Uh, these are a couple of good books from the beginning and most recent ends of populism studies. By populism, I mean the identification of the people as an organic and uniquely virtuous whole, ignored or malignly divided by corrupt and oligarchic elites. Populism restores the illusion of efficacy to those who feel their views are ignored by identikit managerial politicians, while constitutional checks and balances actively frustrate the translation of the people's will into policy through what they want to become elected delegates. Johnson's advisor, Mr. Dominic Cummings' 2016 slogan, Take Back Control, actually captures the sense of regaining agency rather well, though it's likely to prove entirely illusory. This goes with a kind of moral indignancy, more usually characteristic of the political left, on the part of a majoritarian right which has appropriated the grievance culture of minority identity politics. Ali Hochschild's Strangers in Their Own Land, the title is rather significant, is a fine account of how that has played out in the United States, especially in his metaphor of people becoming impatient of waiting in line for rewards that never come, while others cut in ahead of them in the line. A similar sense of victimhood is pervasive across the European populist right too. Rarely can we have heard so much from people who claim to be voiceless, and they of course are protected from scorn by a kind of right-wing political correctness. Actually, they have plenty of articulate ventriloquists too, many writing for magazines and websites which are the toys of hedge fund millionaires. For example, the Brexit-supporting political philosopher, John Gray, late of this parish, blames what he calls liberal bien-pensant, a favourite phrase, incidentally, of the former editor of the Daily Mail, for this state of affairs, writing, and I quote, populism is the creation of a liberal political class that blames its decline on the stupidity of voters. Now, many bewildered liberals may be silently assenting to something said by the great 18th century French reactionary uh, thinker Joseph de Maistre, and I quote, the principle of the sovereignty of the people is so dangerous that even if it were true, it would be necessary to conceal it. I know many liberals who feel like that, some of them in this audience, with some of them advocating what's called an epistocracy, in other words, rule by those who've been highly educated, in which voters are differentially weighed according to criteria like education. Your vote would count for different weights if, according to how well educated you were. Now, unlike major ideologies, there is no founding text which encapsulates populism, as there are for liberalism, Marxism, or reaction. That is why the Dutch scholar Kees Mudder calls populism a thin ideology, bolstered with extraneous elements from other political traditions. That can lead to incoherence. I'll give you an example. British populist ideologues and leaders, for example, are divided 
between demands for more spending by a state, construed as the Wagnerian magic spear which heals all wounds, as the 19th century Prussian historian Friedrich Dahlmann called it. But equally, others are animated by the happy vision of Singapore on Thames, which excites some hedge fund bosses. In reality, of course, this would leave everyone outside the M25 motorway in a colder Malaya without the rubber and tin, including most voters and supporters for Brexit. One can further define populism as a supposedly authentic rhetorical style in which shameless lies are part of the charm, as a series of family resemblances akin to the Habsburg jaw, which you see the same jaw in different generations of portraiture of the Habsburg family and emperors, or as a shadowy near relation to democracy that in times of turmoil looms over the object. Now maybe these definitions are too bland, for in all cases conspiracy theories are involved, namely the belief that liberal, global and national elites are actively conniving to thwart the righteous will of the people because they fundamentally despise them. Remember the old joke that Tony Blair so hated the English working class that he sought out a less inert Polish one to replace them. It ceased to be a joke some time ago. Recall, too, Prime Minister Gordon Brown dismissing a bigoted woman during the 2010 election campaign on a microphone that he didn't realise was still live. Or there's Hillary Clinton's remark, of course, famously, six years later, about half of Trump's supporters belonging in a basket of deplorables, by which she meant, further digging her own grave, their racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. Now, what claims to be holistic is, in fact, highly divisive and involves many of us being rendered unreal. Populism involves a sleight of hand in which the people must be subdivided into the authentically real ones who intuit what is right and the cosmopolitan unrooted who could be everywhere and nowhere, as Prime Minister Theresa May notoriously put it, echoing the British journalist David Goodhart. Vox populi, vox dei, as Mr Mogg puts it. Voice of the people, voice of God. Actually, the cliché of ordinary people, and I am a historian, is highly constructed, though we accept Vox Pops, of course, on TV news all the time. You know, what the person in Bradford thinks. The term ordinary people actually mainly derives from World War II and films like the 1945 love movie, romantic movie, Brief Encounter, in which Celia Johnson protests, I'm just an ordinary woman. Ordinary people, of course, were celebrated in wartime and afterwards as the common-sense alternative to academics, bureaucrats and experts. It's not a, a word or a term with a long, deep history, actually. Now, unlike interwar fascists, most populists are not anti-democratic. In fact, they can't get enough of voting. Italy's uh, five-star movement would have us all voting, or them voting, online 24-7, a truly nightmarish prospect, and one which would lend itself to obsessives to be charitable. Imagine all the midnight online poker addicts switching uh, to put side bets on the outcome of various referenda and desperately trying to alter the results. There's one. 
There's also what Cass Mudder and others call the democratization of democracy, which is harder to controvert. One effect of populism, whether in Latin America, Britain or Germany, has been to revitalize democracy in the first case, for example, by empowering indigenous peoples excluded by Hispanic elites, in the second and third by coaxing lifelong non-voters to the ballots, often meaning voting for the AFD or the Brexit party. And it's hard for anyone to deplore political apathy and then object when people vote in record numbers, though as many argue voting is only the half of it, for people vote in Russia and Turkey too, to take a couple of examples. Now these core um, beliefs of populism have been around a long time. As a historian, I suppose I'd better say something about history. Just recall the idealistic, peasant-worshipping, Narodnik students of Tsarist Russia, who, like anthropologists, discovered their own peasantry rather than a new tribe of hunter-gatherers in Siberia. Many were so appalled by their lack of resonance among the peasants, that, uh, who of course were God and Tsar-fearing folk, that they took to violent terrorism instead and decided to sort of quickly change the system by killing or assassinating the top man. Or there's the Wizard of Oz world of American Democrat demagogue William Jennings Bryan. Both the 1900 book and the 1939 film, which I'm sure you've all seen, are an allegory of populism in which Oz is short for ounce of gold or silver and the failed demagogue Bryan himself is the lion without a roar. The wicked witches of the compass are eastern bankers and railroad barons. There was also a very nasty anti-Chinese racism underlying the People's Party in the States as well. Such a brief history, the less familiar history, would encompass such evanescent figures as Guglielmo Giannini and Pierre Poujard in post-war France and Italy. Poujard launched the political career, by the way, of an equally anti-Semitic 27-year-old uh, soldier called Jean-Marie Le Pen, who in 1956 was elected a Poujardist deputy, the youngest, in fact, in the Assembly. Before resuming his military career, not he'd been in Indochina, he resumed it in Algeria as a professional torturer of Arabs and going on then to lead the Front National, as it was then called. Poujard and Giannini remained what seemed to be backwards-facing figures because the main ideological conflict was the Cold War struggle between the partisans of liberal democracy and Soviet communism, rather than about newsagents, parfumiers or tobacconists being wiped out by department stores and supermarkets and extortionate government taxes. The milk-drinking Prime Minister, Pierre Mendes France, who was Jewish, excited special hatred in a nation of vin rouge and perno lovers. They really had it in for him, especially people who produce wine. The rise of populist parties has been much more gradual and fiziparous than people without historical memory assume. Of the 55 most successful parties, 28 were founded before 2000 and only 16 after the turn of the millennium. Perhaps the end of bipolar conflict had something to do with the latter. Certainly, many populists regard President Vladimir Putin as a kind of national sovereignist hero battling against what he calls gay roper, 
Actually, that Austrian Eurovision Song Contest winner, Conchita Wurst, seemed to excite his particular uh, ire. Indeed, the fusion of chauvinism, religioid social conservatism, and pro-babies welfareism, which we see in Hungary of Fidesz Party or Poland's Law and Justice Party, are almost identical to that of Putin's own United Russia Party, albeit without the great power pretensions. And of all the populist formulae, that's probably the mix with the most traction, possible traction, which is disturbing enough. The most venerable populist parties include the Austrian Freedom Party, established in 1956 for former Nazis, Ulster's Democratic Unionist Party, and the Swiss People's Party, both founded in 1971, and France's Front National, which was formed a year later. Now, you're mostly too young to remember the advent of the DUP, but they were the abrasive voice of the East Belfast Protestant working class. Their voluble, free Presbyterian leader, Ian Paisley, who I can remember always shouting, take your hands off that man, sounded very different from the captains this, colonels that, or majors this, meaning war veteran posh landowners who dominated Ulster Unionist uh, politics up to that point. Nowadays, populist parties are part of every third European government, with two in sole power, Hungary and Poland, and half a dozen in ruling coalitions. According to the authoritative Swedish Timbro Index for 2018, such parties are supported by roughly a quarter of European voters. To adopt a football metaphor, many have expanded beyond the early hooligans to the regular family fans. The reasons why national populism has erupted in the last decade are not especially mysterious, though it's not the ineluctable movement like a wave that its academic boosters imagine. Uh, Professor Matthew Goodwin of the University of Kent is a very good example. Greece recently reverted to a classic two-party system except with the defeated Syriza party replacing Pasok on the left, and not a single seat for the neo-Nazi Golden Dawn. The latter, in fact, recently shut down its Athens headquarters after a dismal 2.9 share of the vote after, amidst a conservative landslide. The most recent Austrian election saw the Freedom Party vote fall from 26% in 2017 to 16.2% in the last election, admittedly in the wake of a bizarre corruption scandal on Ibiza involving Russians and the party's leader. In Hungary, the all-triumphal Fidesz, a party dedicated to Christian family values, you will all recall, lost control of 11 of the country's 23 major towns this autumn, not least because one of their mayoral candidates used public money to fund cocaine-fueled orgies on a yacht off Croatia. Now, he was re-elected, as it happens, because life moves in very strange ways sometimes, but his antics damaged many of his colleagues. The Netherlands has often been cited as another hotbed of populism, symbolised by the bleach-blonde Geert Wilders. But his shock value... He's the man on the left. The other one isn't blonde. His shock value has worn off, and he has competition from the rising thruster Thierry Baudet 
a smart yuppie who speaks Latin as fluently as the Pope, as it happens. Now, Baudet's Forum for Democracy party has had some success as a kind of novelty, but he repelled many with allusions to what he called a boreal civilization, and I had to look that up too, meaning primordial white northern forest dwellers. That was his big passion. A climate change denier who believes women want to be dominated, this is Baudet on the night when he had a particular electoral success, and I quote, Like all the other countries in our boreal world, we're being destroyed by the very people who are supposed to protect us. We're being undermined by our universities, that's you lot, our journalists, that's me, by people who get art subsidies and who design our buildings. The longer history of populism reveals many party vehicles being tested and rejected. Recall the, the Referendum Party, the Anti-Federalist League, UKIP, founded here in the History Department when I taught here, and Veritas, also in this country, with Brexit Limited, as I call it, or they call it, as the latest vehicle. The AFD in Germany has split too, with a supposedly more moderate Frau Capetri decamping to form a new party called the Blues, to hoover up bourgeois nationalists who don't want to rub shoulders with skinhead extremists. But these national populist parties simultaneously exert a gravitational pull on mainstream parties transforming their terms of reference. Worse, they can act as the human equivalent of African, aggressive African bees wiping out more placid indigenous hives, the fate of America's Republicans and Britain's Conservatives. This confronts politicians of a centrist disposition, and actually the journalist Matthew Paris has written very intelligently about this, whether they're British or German conservatives, with a difficult dilemma. Do you leave or form coalitions, perhaps in order to defang the populists through enforced responsibility? Or, um, and of course, if you do that, does that come with sort of freighted with multiple dangers? These are not easy issues once you're inside politics to mentally and emotionally deal with. After all, political parties are like churches or families, and once you step out of them, you're on your own, often. Nor have we witnessed a general springtime of the nationalists, as the British Conservative Minister Michael Gove enthused before Brexit led virtually all European Eurosceptics to regard the UK as an international basket case. Weak common denominators preclude concerted activity, for this is really not like Europe in 1848 with its galaxy of liberal national liberators hoping to free their nations from the oppression of multinational empires. That is why contemporary populists have to caricature the EU as a Fourth Reich, Union, or EU SSR, as if a freely entered association of states is an updated form of the militant totalitarianism which in 1951 the coal and steel community was created to transcend. Europe's populists have not had much success either in forging their own bloc in the European Parliament where they're strewn, scattered, between at least three rival groups because of ideological or personality clashes. I mean, these people like Le Pen and Farage and Salvini have massive egos, and that's almost the extent of it. While supporters of the EU 
should rejoice that every single national populist party has abandoned emulating the British with Grexit, Italexit, and all the rest of the exits. The bad news is that they're resolved to work inside the EU Parliament and institutions to bring about their colourful vision of confederated sovereign nation-states, which will also happily pull the plug on European elite liberalism. As in national parliaments, coalition building will become extremely difficult and protracted. I mean, after all, imagine what Spain is undergoing at present and has been actually undergoing since last April, and it's going to have another bout of it again after the indeterminate election they've just had, although I gather that some sort of coalition has been discussed. We should also mention the external actors who do not wish the EU well either. One is President Putin, who would like to divide the EU while detaching it from the United States. He has very close relations with Le Pen, having got a Czech Russian bank to extend a 9 million euro loan to her party a few years ago, uh, with Viktor Orban in Hungary and with Salvini in Italy. And he also deliberately uses gas pipelines, which apparently is a sort of pastime. He can draw gas pipelines like generals draw tank columns. That's his hobby, is the, the gas pipelines. He jots them down. Um, and anyway, he's used those to foster discord within EU member states, for example, obviously between Germany and Poland over the Nord Stream 2 double uh, pipeline that they're building. Brexit is also a golden opportunity to take Anglo-Russian relations out of the freezer following the Skripal poisonings and to exploit Britain's impending apartness. Uh, Putin's oligarch ciphers are busy corrupting the House of Lords and others, though we're not allowed apparently to to read a report which um, should have been published about it. Of course, another national disgrace. President Trump is also no fan of the EU either, regarding the Europeans as a burden on the tax-paying uncle sucker, while Europe's farmers, aircraft and auto manufacturers benefit from state subsidies. His quondam advisor, Steve Bannon, a subversive, apocalyptic, Catholic multimillionaire, has been trying to coordinate European populist movements through what you might call a kind of pop-intern resembling Comintern in the 1930s. Without much success, however, since many populists on the right have a history of anti-Americanism, which is only partly mitigated by their enthusiasm for Trump. He, of course, is a law unto himself, from tweet to tweet, as one saw when he favoured uh, this summer Italy's technocrat Prime Minister, Giuseppe Great Job Conti, over his Italy first soulmate, Matteo Salvini, who was not pleased by this at all. Now, none of the above is to deny that populism speaks to real people's concerns. This is what I want to turn to now. Something must be driving ordinary people, or ordinary French people rather, to spend their weekends camped out on miserable rural roundabouts discussing issues like green fuel taxes, which of course they do a lot of driving in the countryside, so that costs, or the negative impacts of the gig economy on their children's futures. It seems to me that elites have a lot to answer for, something I say with trepidation in this training ground for global elites. Elites discredited themselves, whether through the lies told 
to legitimize the 2003 invasion of Iraq and then of Libya in 2011, or serial corruption scandals, some in the 1990s, in Britain, France, Italy, Spain, and of course not forgetting Germany's recent Dieselgate emission scandal involving crooked activity by the directors of VW, Audi, and so forth. Italy's clean hands uh, investigation in the 1990s swept up 251 MPs, four former prime ministers, five party leaders, and seven former cabinet ministers, and ten suspects killed themselves to avoid arrest or trial. Now, at the time, I was teaching a young Italian MA student here who seemed to me to be permanently depressed. He was the son of a major um, Rai TV executive, and I asked him what was wrong. He said, most of my father's friends are in jail. What do you say to that? I was completely speechless. Corruption combined with managerial professionalism to add substance to the idea that politicians were what comedian Beppe Grillo denounced as la casta, the caste. Politophobia in shoes, they are all the same, all on the take, and easily amenable to the corrosive effects of satire, which of course is rarely reverse-engineered towards the satirists who are often members of the elites themselves. One solution is to turn to what are called NSIDs. Have you heard of NSIDs, all of you? NSIDs? It means empathetic, I can hardly say it, empathetic, non-self-interested decision-makers. Empathetic, non-self-interested decision-makers. That means the likes of billionaires Ross Perot, Silvia Berlusconi, and Donald Trump, or indeed comedians and entertainers like Grillo, and of course Ukraine earlier in the year elected a comedian too. One should not underrate the appeal of rogues in societies where informal social norms have atrophied to embrace crooks and tax dodgers as well as litter, swearing, truancy and any number of social evils. Berlusconi not only said, I am like you, but he also winked, I can be as bad as anyone. Something brilliantly portrayed in Paolo Sorrentino's recent movie, Loro, which, of course, is the Italian for them. You should all go and see it. It's wonderful. Mr. Trump, of course, took this to an entire other level entirely. I mean, openly boasting that he didn't pay any taxes, or that he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and nothing would happen to him. Um, Britain's current publicity addict prime minister vaulted, you'll recall, to national prominence first by changing his Times byline deliberately from Alexander to the more evocative Boris, and I have a witness in this room who saw him do it, and by writing lies about straight bananas and condoms for fishermen, all mandated by Brussels. But mainly, as a tussle-haired comedian on the show Have I Got News For You, that's where he shot to real celebrity. Trump, of course, um, fired people on the programme uh, The Apprentice, which was a format devised by a former British commando, would you believe, who, of course, also devised the, the uh, format Celebrity Jungle, by the way. I've had to look into this. Um, incidentally, whereas working-class people had much bitter experience of middle-class professionals who upbraided them for feeding their children fried chicken or for smoking, or who queried their welfare 
claims, the billionaire class of personage had a very glamorous, almost otherworldly lifestyle, which they eagerly consumed under the hairdresser, hairdryer in glitzy magazines like Hello or Grazia. Especially if the billionaire was semi-articulate and spoke their language too. I mean, Trump talks like a lot of ordinary people, to use that phrase, talk. He's also highly inarticulate. By contrast, the class-obsessed British have always been suckers for articulate, smooth toffs too, like Johnson or the absurd Mr. Mogg, the honourable member for the 18th century, as we call him. Now, this brings us to the matter of exclusion, or rather the extrusion, uh, of people from working-class backgrounds from political life and its professionalisation into a career. The most striking thing about David Cameron's recent memoir is its insider's description of the life of a typical quadrangle person, as I call them, moving along a conveyor belt of ease from Eton and Balliol to the very top, with the aid of nepotism at every stage, until there's enough money in the pot for a decorous gypsy caravan in which to write the memoir. In the case of Britain's Labour Party, whereas in the 1920s 80% of MPs had working-class backgrounds, that's true of only 8% today, while in France only 2% of politicians so self-describe despite Macron's attempts to open politics to what are tellingly called civilians by the professionals. I was once on a BBC radio programme with, with a panel of politicians, David Blunkett and somebody called Louise Mensch, and she turned around to me in a very sort of patronising way and said, well, of course, a civilian like you wouldn't get this. I thought, what the hell are you talking about, a civilian? Civilians, how ridiculous. The effects of elite intermarriage and nepotism shouldn't, should be mentioned too, something even more glaringly apparent in the media if one is alert to the recurrence of surnames, which I certainly am. Fields like pop music, TV and acting, where in the 60s working-class people once distinguished themselves, have also been colonised by the well-resourced. Cameron himself started off working for downmarket Carlton TV, by the way, courtesy of his future mother-in-law, Lady Astor, who knew Michael Green, the owner. My friend George Walden's 2008 book, The New Elites, Making a Career Among the Masses, is really worth reading on that theme. But let's revert to the matter of general causes rather than the human stories, you might say, of how elites really operate. The competence and honesty of financial, regulatory and policy elites was further damaged by the 2008 financial crash which also revealed the colossal sense of entitlement of the already rich. They may competitively contribute to preferably environmental or third world charities at crass tuxedo dinners which are cringe-making to attend, but they also barge along like Mr and Mrs Toad in huge SUVs, cross the skies in private jets, or blithely excavate subterranean cinemas and swimming pools under old townhouses. Incredibly, the equivalent of 50 tower blocks have been dug under central London in recent years so that rich people can avoid going to public cinemas. That would be the same London, this one, which has become like Alibaba's cave for the ill-gotten gains of the world's super-rich. 
There are guided tours I could recommend you, which highlight specific luxury residences like St. George's Tower in Vauxhall, a legacy of the Labour politician, um, what's he called, Prescott, John Prescott, and home to people who have systematically looted their own country's resources, countries in Africa or for the Ukraine for that matter, but of course who sustain an entire lackey class in London. The ensuing tribulations of the Eurozone destroyed the more modest expectations of young people in Greece, Italy and Spain, among whom unemployment rose to 50 or 60 percent, stimulating left-wing populist parties in two of these cases, as well as the international celebrity of economist Yanis Varoufakis, the idol of many Brexit-supporting politicians, of course, because he's so critical of the EU. For sure, many people were angry at bankers who became objects of indiscriminate opprobrium, but the buck stopped at elected politicians. As Marcus Wagen shows in one of the few decent studies of politicised anger, this was mainly directed at national politicians and then the EU, who they thought were contractually obliged to protect them from reckless cowboys in the city of London and elsewhere, for whom austerity was for other people, whose taxes also funded colossal bank bailouts. The collapse of RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, worked out at 8,500 per Scot, and the bailout was equivalent to £740 per head for the entire British population, including children. By 2013, this stake had lost half its value. Finally, we must address globalisation and its multiple discontents. Technologies controlled by a global plutocracy provided the illusion of intense community among the aggrieved while reducing complex issues to 140 characters, a thumbs up or down, and an emoji. Outrage became infinite within hermetic silos of the like-minded um, in media which are supposed to broaden rather than close minds. Globalisation meant the erosion of the familiar and feelings of loss of control over cultural identity not to mention manufacturing jobs lost to outsourcing. The 2015 migration crisis enabled academic sects like UKIP or the AFD, where professors had initially obsessed about currency and sovereignty, to metamorphose into mass parties primarily focused on curtailing migration. Major terrorist attacks in Paris and Brussels between November 2015 and March 2016 ensured facile, real-time elision of migrants and terrorists. The effects in Britain were reflected in the 2016, June 2016 referendum. Ironically, and I do stress these points, it was the British who were most in favour of the European Single Market Act in 1986, which facilitated labour mobility. It was the British who enthusiastically advocated European enlargement up to and including Turkey, which certainly the French and the Germans didn't want. And it was the British who airily refused to impose quotas on economic migration from the new East European accession states after 2004, as they were entitled to do. Hypothetical confidence about 10,000 Poles arriving became panic when nearly a million did. Migration was also magnified as an issue in countries, and this is an important point, 
which had lost so many people to the more dynamic economies of Western Europe where wages could be five or ten times higher. An exodus of young people, um, in some cases involving more than a quarter of the population in places like Latvia or um, Hungary, etc., left, leaving older people behind who felt they were losers, especially after the concurrent arrival in the 1990s of smart-suited Westerners with the know-how to demolish their old industrial economies. It's called privatization. Let's take Thuringia, which is one of the provinces of the former GDR of East Germany, communist East Germany, <coughs> where, incidentally, in October, this October, the AFD uh, doubled their share of the vote in a regional election. Now, since the 1990s, Thuringia has experienced the departure of 445,000 people, leaving 2.1 million uh, behind. Since young women from the service sectors found it easier to move, this left a lot of unattached males who, following the collapse of communist heavy industry, had gone from being heroes of socialist labour to being unemployed losers or underemployed losers. And in fact, the only places with the worst gender imbalance uh, than the former GDR are within the Arctic Circle. These Eastern men are not surprisingly very angry. Now, since, now just as anti-Semitism doesn't actually need any Jews to flourish, a paradox, but it's true, so anti-migrant racism does not need real migrants, as one can see in the four Visegrad group countries, that's Hungary, Poland, Czechia and Slovakia, which was founded in 1991. These have strenuously resisted the imposition of migrant quotas by the EU, even though regional structural aid is now a larger EU budget head than the entire common agricultural policy. It's actually 4% of Hungarian GDP, by the way. Now, some of these countries, like Hungary, went from, as it were, being red to grey overnight in demographic terms as young folk left to go to London or wherever and the grey heads remained. As the great Bulgarian scholar Ivan Krastev shows, one might cunningly turn a domestic demographic catastrophe, which that is, into a positive advert for authoritarian illiberalism. This requires ideologues. Oh, I forgot to show you them, but never mind. Uh, <clears throat> I knew I would do that. Uh, for years, such marginal figures as the French aesthete Renaud Camus, the man on the left, or the Swiss authoress Giselle Littmann, whose pen name is Bat Ior, have been propounding the idea that liberalism, aided by George Soros, who is Jewish, of course, is deliberately seeking to replace the entire population of Europe with third world helots so as to bring about Eurabia. I showed you an AFD poster at the start which displays precisely that idea. The French ideologue Eric Zemmour, who is very close to uh, Le Pen, uh, actually published a book in 2014 called French Suicide to dramatize that very idea. It was hugely popular, despite the absurd title with its echoes of Arthur Kersler's 1963 book Suicide of a Nation, which of course you, some of you will recall was about Britain. Now in this idiosyncratic reading, 
liberal Europe becomes the failed past while the new illiberal authoritarian Europe becomes the future and an illusion of large-scale migration into Europe substitutes for homegrown demographic collapse due to deindustrialization, etc. The Brexit campaign similarly conflated intra-European migration uh, under you know, the four freedoms with the threat of 80 million visaless Turks without mentioning, of course, that in their vision of buccaneering global Britannia, our future, the UK would be open to many more non-EU migrants, a theme which was not dramatised on the side of any bus. The failure of national policymakers to anticipate many manifestations of globalisation exacerbated the neglect into which entire parts of countries had long fallen, often through deliberate deindustrialization, as happened in this country under Thatcher. What our Polish friends call Polska B, eastern rural Poland, had its grim analogues in coastal Britain with its left-behind towns, eastern Germany or the Pas de Calais region of France to range no further. In what feels like also uh, something familiar from the 1920s and 30s, we've seen a sharp rise in provincial resentment towards major metropolises, except nowadays it's cosmopolitan and liberal Hamburg, London or Paris, rather than Red Berlin, Red Madrid or Red Vienna. In Britain, the gravest charge that populists can make against their middle-class opponents is that they shop at Waitrose rather than the cheaper Little. Personally, I'm very glad that since Chris and I were boys in the early 1960s, things have improved because then the only olive oil you could buy was in chemists to use to unblock our ears rather than to put on salads. I kid you not. That really was it. There was one type of olive oil you got from a chemist. Others, like David Goodhart, lament the decline of cosy communities of somewheres and the swift passage of our societies from being the equivalent of traditional country house hotels where rules are intuited by the inhabitants to the anomie of budget hotels and hostels, thereby bypassing the homemaking stage. But surely much of this reflects how we live now. It's just that simple, including in villages and small towns which are nostalgically idealised um, beyond recognition, because, of course, populism often involves a heavy dose of sentimentality towards select parts of the population. In reality, of course, the fashion industry, or CGI uh, animation, uh, contributes far more to UK PLC's GDP than fishing trawlermen. That's the brute reality of it. Also, you can't have a viable village school if there are fewer children being born, a post office if people communicate via email or SMS, or village shops if the goods roll in from Amazon's contractors. Families which hardly talk to each other at mealtimes as they scan their Facebook and Instagram pages cannot be expected to chat happily with neighbours over the garden fence either. Nostalgia for a lost world disguises complex questions about how we've chosen to live in the present and our total lack of resistance towards transformative technologies. I recommend you seek out a very, very good book, an interesting book by the late Callistos Juma, a Kenyan historian at Harvard, 
uh, which is about how societies resisted things like the introduction of coffee, margarine, recorded music, usually vested interests, of course. Margarine, uh, the, the dairy farmers had it packaged in pink cartons with a big black cross on it as if it was something toxic. Very clever, that. Um, anyway, you would have to ask yourself, here's a question for you. Why would you rather pay at an automated till in a supermarket rather than provide work for six formers, the low-skilled or the mentally impaired? Is five minutes of human engagement too much for you or me? Because in my case, I spend three hours looking at newspapers on an iPhone, as the phone tells me at the end of every week. Now, so far, I've mentioned failures on the parts of elites and the incohate anger of ordinary people, something we hear day in, day out in the media. Something rather crucial is missing. The representative face of our time is not Hitler, however many moustaches you add to Farage's face or Merkel's if you happen to be Greek, but rather this fellow. Younger people in the audience probably aren't familiar with Howard Beale, the character played by Peter Finch in the 1976 movie Network. Fired as a new network news anchorman, Beale has a nervous breakdown, shouting from a window, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. This proves resonant, so much so that he's immediately rehired to rant and shout until his very popular pensées affect corporate interests involving Saudi petrodollars and he's assassinated live on air by a terrorist group which wants the publicity. Anyway, let's turn to canalised and synthetic anger. The US Tea Party owed its existence to a real-life Howard Beale, a hedge fund trader called, uh, turned broadcaster called Rick Santelli, who in 2009 denounced Obama for subsidising the mortgages of what Santelli called losers. It was Santelli who called for a Chicago Tea Party, thereby launching a grassroots movement which would eventually capture a political party. Its dominant tone was anger, which of course is actually often a very useful emotion if you think about um, how you check others' behaviour or if you think of Martin Luther King, etc., etc., Black Lives Matter and so on. Ironically, those most uh, responsible for orchestrating mass anger are themselves members of elites, however successfully they construe themselves as insurgent outsiders. There is nothing ordinary about Nigel Farage, a metals trader turned talk radio star and Europe's first PayPal politician nor about the AFD co-leader Beatrix von Storch, or to accord her due deference, Beatrix Amelie Ehrengard Eilicke von Storch, Duchess of Oldenburg, a former banker and lawyer turned populist leader. Not your usual lawyer, of course, since despite being a fundamentalist Christian, Storch suggested that German border guards might be licensed to shoot illegal migrant uh, women and children, though she took out, so to speak, the children in what was not a public apology. Uh, also, there's Matteo uh, Salvini from the League, um, who comes from a pretty wealthy Milanese family, and who honed his skills on a uh, radio station called Radio Padana, Padania Libra, and that's what I want to turn to now before I need more than three libel lawyers. Um, mass anger has been articulated and shaped by tabloid newspaper columnists, by shouty talkers on AM and FM radio, and websites whose comment boxes are dominated by people trapped in a perpetual loop of semi-psychotic rage. 
The US illustrates where that leads to in terms of democratic political culture, and some of it will remind you of what is happening here in Europe. It's worth recounting how the political consequences unfolded. Basically, uh, radio uh, um, AM was going down uh, because music migrated to FM, but then they found that interactive talk radio uh, was a way of sustaining it and making money, and it did particularly well in rural areas where people drive a lot in, among night workers and the old and lonely, so it did pretty well. And then once you got mobile phone, phones, bingo, because every Jack and Jill can join in. And the audience joined an illusory community hosted by a specially entertaining and forthright friend uh, who articulated and shaped thoughts in an amusing way. Now, once the federal fairness doctrine was eliminated in 1987, American talk radio became a conservative monopoly. Uh, 91% of thousands of stations owned by a few monopolies could be described as conservative by 91% by 2007. It's very nice work if you can get it, by the way. Forget accountancy and finance. Uh, Sean Hannity's... um, 2008 syndicated radio contract was worth $100 million spread over five years. Don't be bankers. Go into talk radio. Anyway, this evolved into a toxic brew of entertainment, news, and punditry in which expertise on any given issue was too complicated and boring. In any case, if it was climate science, it was actively denigrated by the happily ignorant. That contempt soon uh, spread to judges and civil servants, the mainstream media, Academics, of course, became a special category of fiend, whether leftist professors or their allegedly snowflake students. Talk radio and shouty TV coincided with floods of dark money deployed for political purposes by libertarian billionaires, who, if they stood for election, won less than 1% of the vote. Successive changes to electoral finance laws facilitated further changes, notably the 2010 Citizens United ruling, uh, which allowed one to donate to a general cause, but one only espoused by specific candidates. Uh, The billionaires also uh, created lots of uh, hardly neutral think tanks, sort of mimicking universities with their scholarly pretensions to churn out tainted research. Um, and then, of course, eventually, and they flooded universities with money too, and then they turned to creating grassroots movements, a process known as astroturfing. They used various layering structures, which are described in a very good book called Dark Money by Jane Meyer, um, to co-opt ordinary people who were already angry about federal profligacy, abortion, or guns, They co-opted them to become angry about the coal, gas and oil industries in opposing climate change science or environmental regulation. People with very modest money and no savings could be made angry too over inheritance taxes or such niche causes as maintaining the carried interest loophole for hedge funds. Imagine trying to squeeze that onto a placard. Now, that same combination of forces, the billionaires and the talkers, next usurped the essential function of traditional party cabals of the wise and the wily in choosing electoral candidates and leaders, which meant they got rid of moderates who were dismissed as rhinos or Republicans in name only in the States. And we've just had that here with brinos, you know, Brexit in name only and people opposed to Brexit. 
Next, the celebrities, because these people are very smooth operators, started chairing the nomination sessions of the parties while putting their thumbs down on the scales in favour of one candidate. The billionaires used data technologies to gerrymander local voting districts after insinuating their kind of candidate into state governments and legislatures. The logical end of this kind of politics is the perpetual campaign which takes priority over serious government, as one can see in both the US and UK, and the manufacture of outrage integral to it. Stability and our ability to tune out of politics are forfeited in a climate where instability and noise are omnipresent and entirely calculated. What on earth do you imagine all the lobby shops, the think tanks and political advisors and consultants actually do? Now, in the last five minutes, I just want to make some tentative suggestions about what to do about this. Last year, I shared a panel with Frank Fukuyama, who had just published a book on the ways in which politics now revolves around identity. Unlike him, I'm actually far from convinced that identity politics is here to stay because, of course, pendulums swing back. Since 2015, migration has lost a lot of electoral salience after the EU belatedly took it seriously, sinking to a fifth or sixth order concern in many polls in many different countries. Social inequality, however, could easily move back up the agenda were there to be another economic crisis like 2008. Boom and bust have assuredly not been abolished, and as we can see on the streets of Santiago in Chile, even something as minor as the reaction to a four peso rise in subway fares can result in troops being deployed on the streets. Now, since Chile often boasts its Latin America's Switzerland, I wouldn't rule that out in many other societies too. We also need to do a better job of explaining that liberal democracy involves much more than casting a vote every four years and in defending the buttresses which make our democracies worthwhile, i.e. incorruptible courts, a free press, a neutral uh, civil service with its own public service ethos, and universities free to discover the causes of things. All moves to transform uh, representation into perpetual plebiscitary democracy should be sharply rejected, along with attempts to degrade representatives into delegates. One decision blithely taken by Cameron in 2013 has resulted in Britain becoming a bitterly divided society. Perhaps the most telling statistic is that whereas 21% of people have no party identity, that only applies to 6% in the case of how they line up on Brexit three years after the referendum. Elites seem to be better at listening, an obvious model being President Macron's updated cahier des doléances to record the grievances of the yellow vests, ironically an idea he filched from Pierre Poujard in the 1950s. Poujard actually wanted to restore the Estates General, by the way. That's an interesting fact. Only when grievances are specified and quantified can anything be done to redress them. And maybe one thing we could do as a sort of uh, way of interesting people in democracy, of course, is to um, think of things like citizens' assemblies and so forth. Listening will be impossible if entirely anonymous media executives constantly re-engineer bogus polarisation in their quest for ratings and readership. Refusing to join that debased circus is worthwhile too, and we need to find alternatives, intelligent alternatives to it. Contrary to free market dogmatists, the state has a role in improving the material well-being of its citizens, 
by regulating the market and redistributing its bounty, just as it played a role in major technological developments through research funding, as the LSE economist Mariana Mazzucato has shown so clearly. Uh, I would also, by the way, uh, seriously think about things like um, volunteer civil service for a year at 17 or 18 in order to bridge age, geographical, social, wealth divisions in a way that in the 19th century military conscription did succeed in doing what the historian Eugene Weber called uh, turning peasants into Frenchmen. People with no wider identity than Brittany or whatever became Frenchmen. Uh, effectively communicating real priorities matters too. I mean how Industrial Revolution 4.0 is transforming our lives or the climate change emergency, which is at least a lot of teenagers grasp. But I just want to end with a thought about the rage which we read about all the time as being integral to populism, but there seems to me to be a complete failure to address or analyse it. Now, conventionally, intractable international or subnational conflicts are resolved through the equivalent of individual psychology, uh, sorry, individual psychotherapy. It's always good to talk, as the old BT advert used to say. In 2016, some Israeli psychologists and sociologists conducted an experiment on a very hawkish Tel Aviv suburb called Givat Shmuel, two-thirds of whose 25,000 inhabitants welcomed the epithet of being right of Attila the Hun. Instead of enjoining people to be open-minded and tolerant, the team hired a PR company to saturate this place for a year with martial posters and online ads, with slogans like, without war, we would never be moral, and depictions of IDF military heroes accompanied by Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, which is odd in Israel. When, after a year, the inhabitants were surveyed on their views, the most extreme had become remarkably less belligerent and more tolerant when compared with control, subject, uh, control su suburbs. And anyway, what's the point of telling you this? Well, nobody wants to be lumped together with permanently enraged cranks as they look into a mirror of their soul. The Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey's decision recently to ban political advertising is certainly a step in the right direction. So too is ITN News's urgent coverage prompted by death and rape threats against British uh, women MPs, where the host of such a news bulletin began by saying, is this what we have become or want to be? Maybe societies will then decide, having looked in the mirror, that enough is enough, or at least it's enough with being mad as hell. Anyway, thank you all very much for coming out on this wet and cold November night in Alibaba's cave, because we certainly need a few mirrors to be set up here in Britain. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Michael, if you would uh, like to take a seat. And let's open it straight up to the audience. Um, will you please, uh, when you stand, identify yourself and say uh, what your affiliation is, if, if you have one. And we'll take a, a couple of questions all at once, and there's a microphone that will be going around the room. So who would uh, like to ask some questions? There's a gentleman over there, right in the middle. If you can pass the microphone down. Can you see him? Yep. I'll get two or three, okay. yeah, so I can write them down. Thank you for an excellent presentation. I was 
well worth coming out this evening. Um, Paul McGrail, Peace News. Um, in one of this week's periodicals, the front page is covered with the names of conservatives who, with a line through their name. And I think the, uh, yeah. the headline is yeah. um, the loss of liberal conservatism. And this mirrors the hallowing out in America of the Republican Party. My question is, how do you account for the lack of backbone in people in in those right-of-center parties who seemingly refuse to stand up to the arrogance that we're seeing uh, in the the popularists? What I recommend you do, because I'm I'm not a politician, so so, my answer's worthless. Uh, if you go back into the Times about a few months ago, can you hear me? Sorry, I'm losing my voice. If you go back into the Times, there's a column by Matthew Paris who writes in it on Saturdays. His main column is on Saturdays, and he, has, he was a Conservative MP. And he describes very well the mental processes. If you are an MP, and this could actually apply to, be, to somebody who's so rich they don't need to be an MP, or actually also politicians who desperately need their 79,000 a year. And he describes the mental processes of thinking, well, maybe not this week. I don't like this, so maybe I'll leave it till next week. And I, you know, I don't like the way this is going, and these people seem to be taking the show over him. But, well, you know, I'll just leave it another week. And it just goes on and on and on until you find yourself in a real mess, and maybe you just, in the end, don't do anything. There's a sort of terrible inertia. You have to imagine, I mean, I'm not defending these people, but, I mean, you have to imagine the type of psychological processes at work where you don't see it. But, I mean, clearly, I mean, I was, I was on the tube uh, the week before last and I bumped into Nick Bowles, who's a, um, somebody I used to know a long, a long time ago, who's a Conservative MP, and he was going in to vote for the last time. I guess he's late 40s, and he's resigning as an MP. He said he's finished with politics. He wants to do something else with his life. And I said, why? He said, well, they've just become the English Nationalist Party. That's it. And uh, you see these people, um, I mean, I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but you see some of these people on on TV news programs or discussions or whatever, and they look like sort of characters that have wandered out of a Bruegel painting. I mean, ghastly. And they're, they're so crass and... I don't know, I can't even find... If I start, I really will say something. You know why you left academia, Michael? Yeah, well... (laughs) Many of my colleagues are from a Bruegel painting. (laughs) Can we have another question, please? Over there. Uh, Thank you for your talk. Uh, I'm Jake. I'm a first-year student here at the LSE. Yep. Um, I was wondering... A lot of the strength of the populist movements tends to be that they identify kind of occult, uh, obscure threats to, to the left behind. And I was wondering, for example, if Brexit were to happen, um, all of a sudden the kind of aspirations of that, the populist parties becomes a reality. Um, are they kind of defanged? Are they, are they, when they have to face reality as they imagine it, do they lose a lot of their appeal? Well, I think, I, yeah, that's a very good, good point because what's quite striking with many populist parties is their reluctance to assume any responsibility. I and mean, Mr. Farage is a, a really striking example of it. I mean, he's been an MEP for, what, 17 or 18 years 
And very tellingly, if you look at his voting record on the, on the Parliament's fishing committee, which he claim, claims to feel very strongly about, he's hardly ever turned up. And I think it's very t telling that he always chickens out, as he's just done yesterday, of becoming an MP. Because he's got far greater personal latitude and for the lifestyle he wants, which you know, is really an income stream for him now. I mean, what, what happened to the, the poor schmucks who paid £100, working class people, most of them, to become Brexit Party MPs? 3,000 of them who were never chosen. Where does that three, £300,000 go? He couldn't answer that program on the radio the other day. So you wonder about these people. Anyway, he'll just go off to America and you know, become, become some sort of TV celebrity or whatever. It's a much easier life. Uh, I'm not sure that's a very good answer to your question. I forgot it as I was talking. <laughs> I think people are going to be in for bitter disappointment. And I think a lot of the... I didn't really get the chance to say this, but I think a lot of the solutions being touted by both political parties in this election, which is just essentially to put in big infrastructure, are not really going to work. I mean, there ought to be much more interesting ways of, of knitting the country together so that there aren't places which just feel like what Matthew Paris actually once called you know, the land that time forgot, like many coastal towns on the east coast of Britain. These places are a disaster. And I can't see that putting in big railways is going to do a lot for them. You'd have to do a lot more for the you know, education to inculcate entrepreneurialism or drive or whatever in, into the population. And, of course, greater disappointment will lead to greater anger. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Kind of Self-reinforcing, yeah. yes. Uh, question over here. <clears throat> um, my name is uh, Adam Somerset, no affiliation. Uh, I'm just a visitor from uh, Keradigion and a writer. Yeah. Uh, you, I'd never heard of Matthew Goodwin until about a month ago, and he seems to be the media man of the moment. You touched very briefly on his thesis and uh, I think the fact that you um, don't agree with it. Could you just actually say what his thesis is and where it is? Um, yeah, forward? sure. Um, sorry, well, so, oh, sorry, I had a second question. Oh, was, sorry. Um, yeah, two. No, I suddenly realised I never heard of, of Kessler's uh, Suicide of a Nation. Is it, is it worth reading 50 years later? Well, if you, if you want to investigate um, the theme of declinism, which is an academic subject in itself, you know, the psychology of countries which see themselves in decline in various periods, and uh, that was post Suez, I think, yes, it, it, it would be interesting about Britain at that time. As for Goodwin, um, well, I'll just give you, uh, I have to be careful here. Um, he uh, does a lot of writing for a website which, uh, by happy coincidence, is owned by the Brexit uh, billionaire Paul Marshall. And uh, I, I would just note that whenever Vox or the AFD or the League or whatever has an electoral success, there is a certain vi vicarious triumphalism, let's say, and I find that slightly crossing a line into something which I personally would feel quite uncomfortable about. Uh, it's a bit to repeat. Um, I once had lunch with a very wealthy British uh, businessman who will remain nameless. And I, I was, there were various types of people at the lunch. And I, I asked him, I was just genuinely surprised. I said, look, a lot of people here are conservatives. How on earth, how on earth can you welcome you know, the AFD, which is a pretty sordid bunch of people, not to speak of some of the others, you, you seem to love it when these people do well in the election. He said, oh, well, they're anti-liberalism. They're anti-the EU, they're anti-liberalism. And I just don't get this. 
This is at a time where you know, the entire EU apparatus, of course, is dominated by political conservatives, liberal conservatives. Anyway. Let me just ask you a question about um, populist foreign policy. Oh, yeah. Can you have a populist foreign policy? Because we're about, I suppose, if, if Boris Johnson wins the election and we're out by the end of January, uh, we will see a populist foreign policy. I don't know whether you have views on what this would look like, but have there been historically, you went back, yeah. uh, you can go back to, of course, uh, early 20th century. Yeah. Could you say something about the successes or failures of populism at the foreign yeah, policy sure. level? Right, which yeah, is no, traditionally I can. a kind of yeah. elitist level. Yeah, 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 foreign policy is made by elites, uh, unfortunately. Um, we call them the informed public rather than... Yeah, 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 I know. Well, if you went back to the period before the First World War, if you went back to the period before the First World War, in every European country, practically, you'd find nationalistic clacks, middle-class clacks, you know, the Navy League, the Eastern Marches Association, the Colonial League, etc., who were agitators like lobby groups. And the Navy Leagues, they would say, right, we want the government to build more battleships. Now, like Brexit supporters, these people were insatiable. So you could cover the whole sea with battleships, side to side, it wouldn't be enough. Now, what was dangerous about that was, of course, that politicians felt intimidated by them and may have taken decisions which in turn up the, up the competitiveness and the rivalry with other naval powers. That was just in... Now, to take a more recent example, again, a bad example, it comes from China. Um, in the earlier part of this decade, there was some clash, I mean, I think it was over islands or something, between China and Japan which have got historical problems with each other. Okay, so some Chinese, rather chauvinistic Chinese, burnt down Panasonic and Sony factories, and when the Chinese police turned up, they tipped the cars over and burnt them too. This is not good. Now, the then president, Hu Jintao, who was seen to be, or thought to be, a bit sort of wobbly on the subject of the Japanese, started to receive envelopes with calcium tablets in them. And the message was, grow a backbone and stand up to the Japanese. Well, they've now got a president who certainly is going to stand up to people. There's no doubt about his backbone. That's the negative. The positive side, and you might not like this, is that, uh, you know, we've seen in the United States recently um, a sizable part of the electorate has balked at the idea of wasting blood and treasure on the greater Middle East. They're not going to do it anymore. They don't want wars in the Middle East. Why? And Trump is somebody who's saying, OK, I hear you. We, we're not going to have wars in the greater Middle East. I'm pulling the troops out. The whole place is a basket case. Let's walk away from it. Not quite, because, of course, nothing is simple with Trump, because America, he is very tight via his son-in-law with MBS in Saudi Arabia, so there are all sorts of linkages there, so he's not entirely going to walk away from the Middle East. But this is surely a good thing, that we're not going to go crashing, or the West is not going to go crashing into countries causing more havoc. Now, you'd have to alter two things to really do this. One, you'd have to stop a type of television reporting which focuses on individual human tragedies with no surrounding context, because the audience is sitting, sitting there saying, my God, there's starving children. Politicians, do something. Now, those television broadcasts, in my opinion, should come with the equivalent of a health warning on a packet of cigarettes and say, unless this is explained in the round, this is useless for any policy-making purpose. Um, the other thing, which 
Professor Stephen Walt said in here a few weeks ago in a very interesting lecture, the foreign policy realist guy from Harvard, um, he said the big problem for Trump is the existence of what he called the blob. In other words, the foreign policy defense think tank establishment, which is standing in the way of implementing those policies precisely because they're in the pockets of people like the Emiratis, the Saudis, and so forth, a lot of them. So the blob is in the way. And what Professor Walt was in fact saying was that we need to produce, educate a whole new cadre of foreign policy people who are less attuned to reckless intervention because to come back to the TV pictures of the starving or whatever distressed children, when you intervene, you can multiply their number by hundreds of thousands. Look at Iraq or Libya. That's what it leads to. So what he was saying, Walt, was that you need a new cadre of people who are going to represent this view, which would actually then mean that someone like Trump had an apparatus to carry through what is basically just his gut instinct, rather than having to work through people who don't agree with him. Now, that's a really important point. So look, on the one hand, there's a bad side to populist foreign policy. On the other side, there could be an upside. Very interesting. Um, time is unfortunately oh. against us. Uh, it was Fujit, as you were going to say in Latin. I was going to use a borrowed... He was going to ask me a question yes. from Tacitus, and he was going to ask it in I Latin. I was. That's a sneaky trick. I was taking my lead from Boris Johnson. Uh, yeah. Obviously, I wish her to have a job in his uh, continuing administration. But that's, the point I wanted to ask you finally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael, is how... It's Putin's point, uh, basically, in the interview he gave the other day with uh, the... Was it the Financial Times? Or the Economist? Yeah, it was, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Financial Liberalism's dead. Yeah. And I just want to go... To, uh, not only do I want to ask you that question, is liberalism dead, but I also want to ask you another question, which does require a little bit of ancient history here, but not Latin, it's Greek. Yeah. And it's, it's a famous uh, speech that Pericles gives, or Thucydides gives to Pericles, the funeral speech in which he's mm. praising the first democracy, as, as far as we know, in the ancient world. But there's a, a, there's a phrase there that nobody ever picks up, where he says, we your rulers... Uh, abide by our laws. In other words, what makes us democratic is we have the rule of law. And we pass a law and we're judged by that law. You elect us, but we actually are an oligarchy, a political elite, uh, a group of people, mostly aristocratic, that submits itself to scrutiny uh, uh, and accountability up yeah. to a point. <laughs> and it seems to me that democracy in the Western world as we've understood it for the last 300 years has been oligarchical. You have political elites, you have different political parties, but there's some, something called a political class. Yeah. They never go to the people and actually ask the vote because that's outrageous. You mentioned the term, the difference between being a delegate and a representative yeah. is founded, this Burkean principle, on, yeah. on oligarchic democracy. Yeah. And it's, my, my concern is that, that, that Putin and, and Xi Jinping are wrong to say that liberalism is dead, but they're right about oligarchy. Not their kind of oligarchy, but the oligarchies that we've got used to. And that spell, that magic spell, has been broken. Yeah, it has. Uh, and the elite is now divided against itself, mm -hmm. uh, basically. Yeah. And that this is a dangerous moment. In no, it is, that is a very dangerous moment and has nothing to do with Nazis, incidentally. Um, I think that um, <clears throat> one way round it, 
I would, I, you know, the problem is, is, as I said, that the whole political class largely comes out of one hatchery, as it were. You know, they, they tread a very predictable career path through universities, think tanks, a bit of time working in a political party, etc., etc. They have specific skills, many of them, of course, by no accident are lawyers because they're extremely articulate speakers. That's why so many lawyers go into politics. Um, but I think one thing you could do is, first of all, maybe think of term limits on MPs or whatever, that you can only do it for a couple of terms, say 10-year max, rather than the current grotesque situation where we've got people like Dennis Skinner or Frank Field or Kate Hoey being elected year in, year out. I would much rather just see people there for 10 years. I mean, by and large, by the way, democratic in democracies, I don't think governments should go on for more than 10 years. I know that's probably rather controversial, but I think they've run out of road of their shelf life. Of course, this would all sound like gobbledygook to an American. Um, I think we should perhaps do things like citizen assemblies so that ordinary people... After all, you know, I'm a great believer in the jury system, having been on one. You know, ordinary people are not fools. Um, the most shouty people actually learn quite quickly to listen to other people and people on the whole come to quite sensible decisions. And I think one could have citizens' assemblies to give people fundamental political skills and to talk about things in an unhysterical way in a, in a context where you know, reason prevails and they get used to things like listening and reading expert evidence. Of course, there's a big problem with that. One is there's no money to pay people for the time and effort they'd have to put into it. And two, as we've seen with many citizens' assemblies, the politicians aren't obliged to act on whatever resolution they come to. But I think anything that promotes that sort of engagement, because, you know, I think you're, you're quite right that we're, we're in danger of, um, you know, people becoming totally cynical about, about politicians. I mean, I want, I'd be quite interested to know how many young people want to go into politics anymore you know, that they're being put off it. I mean, it is quite possible. If you look at, say, recruitment to the banking industry, that took a massive hit after 2008. Nobody wanted to be a banker, become a social pariah. Uh, and likewise, I think that might happen with politicians. And this is, a, this is a pity. It's a very worthwhile, responsible activity, and people should be encouraged to go into it. But I think there really has to be something to broaden the recruitment pool, as it were. Otherwise, we really are in trouble. Well, on that very optimistic note. <laughs> I mean, you talked about calcium tablets. I think everybody should be issued Prozac tablets, and then we'll be artificially uh, happy about the, the future of democracy. But you're quite right. Uh, uh, George Orwell famously said, you know, and all the other isms have been discredited, including liberalism and communism, pessimism would still reign supreme. Uh, and he, I think he knew what he was, what he was talking about. You gave us some hope, uh, anyway, but it's an excellent uh, diagnosis of our contemporary ills, which is exactly what we wanted a historian uh, to do, uh, to give it um, a kind of uh, perspective that is, is, is sometimes lacking in, in political science. Can I, before we ask the audience to uh, thank you again for your presentation. Can we just mention that you will be back again on January the 21st? I hope that's in your diary. Yeah. Good. Uh, and you will be talking about how Russia and Britain did to the loss of empire. That's a very interesting title. If I had my glasses on, I could actually read it. Uh, but Russia, Russia, England, England. 
That sounds like a, a chance in a, at a football match on Saturday. Yes. It's meant to be. Okay, so <laughs> it's quite a lot coming your in January the 21st. Uh, Russian interference. <laughs> if you happen to be there. So, uh, can I just uh, ask you to fill in the forms before you go? I think they're on, on the way out if you've been given them. Thank you very much for coming along, and thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.